Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. Today, we are offering four conversations from episode 33. Our discussion with Sven Frank and Ian Rowe about some of the most important findings from the Diesel Congress 2023, plus a vault episode addressing a similar topic after last year's ILC, or International Liver Congress, the one now known as the Diesel Congress. Sven Frank starts this conversation with another paper from Vincent Wong, this time in a Japanese cohort, the correlated liver stiffness with risk of decompensation in HCC. One key, the study relied on repetitive MRE readings over time. Jorn Schottenberg and Ian Rowe note that this is the kind of study they could not execute in their countries. In fact, Jorn describes himself as jealous. But Jorn goes on to note that this kind of study will help the field move from biopsy toward MITs, in this case, MRE scans, for key moments in managing patients. I ask what all this tells us about the frequency of testing that adds the most information in a cost-effective way. After this, Ian Rowe goes on to highlight a study from the Edinburgh Group about the identification of a gene signature that will accurately predict the risk of decompensation. This is the flip side of the biopsy issue, not about how to avoid biopsies and care, but how to make better use of the biopsy tissue we receive in research in ways that will show us ways to learn more about patients without performing biopsies in the future. From here, we shift to my wrap-up question about what to expect from next year's meeting. Most of the rest of the conversation focuses on ways that researchers will study the nomenclature, and there are a couple of surprises at the end. Our entire key opinion leader and advocate team has been struck forcibly by how many studies provided significant advances in knowledge, and how some of these advances might change our underlying understandings of drugs, diagnostics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, basic science, and clinical pathways in patient treatment. It's been quite a lot to digest and very exciting to consider. So sit back, listen, learn, enjoy. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. And again, join us next week. Why don't we swing back around to Sven and pick a paper that you wanted to discuss that was not nomenclature and have at it. Sven Frank. There was one in, in the same session as the one Ian has been talking about from, from Vincent. It was a Japanese study on repetitive MRE measurements in patients and how that correlated with the outcomes. Uh, of course, the numbers were not uh, comparable to what, what we have in studies with, uh, with FIP4 and the Korean study. But uh, still, I think it was about 450 patients, something something like that, with MR elastography repeated after two years on average, and I think seven or eight years of uh, follow-up. And they could clearly show that if there was uh, a worsening of the liver stiffness, it also correlated with more risk of decompensation events and hepatocellular carcinoma, so mainly liver events. It was not so much related to cardiovascular events or, or, or non-hepatic malignancy. It was pure liver, liver events that it correlated with. And also the other way around, if it's improved, then the risk was clearly, clearly lower. So what I found interesting is because we still are struggling with how to follow up patients, what's the meaning of changes in NITs over time, how does that translate? translate into better outcomes. We have a few hints, as you already alluded to, also with, with the FIP4. We have some large studies showing that, but, but in the end, we have very few data, few data on fibroscan, but also in quite a limited number of patients. So it's interesting to see more and more data showing you that, and still we need to translate it to the individual patient because there's a variability of the test. So we need to be cautious in the individual patients with, with the message we give. But at least if you have groups of patients, it shows you that those NITs 
that really reflect something is going wrong with the liver, if they worsen over time, that also correlates with the prognosis of the patients, but also the other way around, if they improve, it also correlates with better outcomes for the patients. So slowly, but we're, we're getting more and more data that help us how to work with NITs also in follow-up of patients and what the evolution over time in these NITs can tell us about the prognosis and so the true evolution of the patient. That is something I, I still find very interesting. But again, as I said, translating it to the individual patient and what the message to an individual patient should be when he has an NIT that worsens or improves, I think we still have a lot of work to do there. But, but yeah, those kind of data are helping to move the field forward with, with that issue. Jörn Schattenberg. I missed part of that presentation, but I agree with Sven. It's, it's, um, it's a very important study. I'm always a little jealous when I see those repetitive uh, uh, MR uh, imaging studies because my access to MR is not as, you know, strong as some of these Asian or U.S. Yeah. <laughs> investigators. Yeah, so I thought if I had hands-on uh, Mark, you know, we're pretty much only able to do it within clinical trials. Just have, gonna have to come spend another year in the states, Jorn. Come to Philadelphia, we'll hang out. It'll be fun. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All I'm uh, tempting. Anyways, I think it's th that type of studies is important to show us how we link those NITs to outcomes, which is, you know, adds to the body um, of growing evidence to move away from biopsy eventually and helps us to steer patients uh, and, and, and manage them. Uh, once we have a drug, manage them non-invasively. So, naive question. What does that tell us about the appropriate frequency of testing, right? We made the comment earlier in this, the frequency of testing was going to be a significant issue going forward. How frequently are you going to be testing patients? So what does this tell us about that? If I take a shot at this, I say we should be careful to recommend intervals too strictly because we are not so sure what it means. We don't want to miss patients, but we're going to spend a lot of time testing for patients that are pretty stable. So I'm reluctant to test repetitively unless I really worried about the patient with additional risk factors. And I think I'd rather invest in testing patients I think are at risk once. And then, you know, if I have limited time and money, I'll probably spend it on testing more patients instead of testing less patients repetitively. Um, I'm, I'm not sure you can say it that way, but you know, you also have to think about resources. That was part of the source of my question. You've got two sets of resources, right? You've got the patient attention and credibility, and you've got dollars. So the point that the study made, one point the study made to me was that once we've identified people who are at a certain point in disease, repeat NITs will tell us how much risk they're at and how aggressively they need to be treated. But then, as you, as you point out, that's not cheap, and where is it going to come from? I think that that's going to be a dilemma as we go forward, and we have a peculiar American view to that, This, which is we test everybody all the time if we think we have to, um, until, the pay, until the insurers tell us no. But that's only the Americans. I don't think anybody else operates that way, nor do I think the Americans should even. But, uh, but the, that's why I get the questions like that. Ian, you left. Either I said something funny or... Uh... Ian Rowe. Well, so, so two things. One is that if I was... I'm not particularly jealous about not having... MRE. We've got lots of other ways to spend our money. The, the second thing was the rate of events in the progressor arm is high, but the, but the number of events is very small. So for decompensated cirrhosis, I think there were five patients who decompensated, and that could easily be. It's quite difficult to tell from the plots that are in the abstracts, but that looks like it might be fewer than there are in the non-progressor curve, which comes back to that discussion about you know personalised versus population testing earlier. And the other thing that I would highlight is that there's a paper just out in gastroenterology from the Vienna group from Thomas Ryberger with not Nash patients specifically 
specifically, but just over two and a half thousand patients with repeated fibro scan for liver stiffness measurement that shows you know similar findings in terms of disease progression. So the data for longitudinal assessment of biomarkers in a natural history sense is coming, and it'll be easier to get and potentially more reliable, I think, than than histology will be. The you know the, the final question in terms of treatment is whether it's sensitive to improvement with therapy from a clinical, if not regulatory, perspective. Then we'll be there for for how we'll use them in the future. Okay, you aren't a Ian. Whoever has something you really want to dive into, dive on in. So I was I was going to highlight, having just said that we could move away from biopsy, I'm just going to highlight studies that are based on histology from the Edinburgh group where the steatocyte cohorts. And we talked a little bit about one of those in the live session that we did at some ungodly hour in the morning in Vienna, which was about you know using histology to predict clinical outcomes. But the second paper that they had, which was in a poster session that I moderated, was about the identification of a, of a gene signature that would accurately predict the risk of decompensation. And I think this shows a really nice link between taking features from histology and developing blood-based biomarkers from them. So that's, I think it's a top poster. So TOP082. And this is, as I say, from the from the Edinburgh group. And they did bulk sequencing from needle biopsies, identify differential gene expression, and then look to see which of those differentially expressed genes would be detectable in serum. So going from what you see in the tissue into a blood-based biomarker, you know, and they find a potentially a, a gene signature that will predict the risk of decompensation. And a lot of what we've talked about previously has been about finding patients who've got significant or advanced fibrosis. And this takes the argument forward then to, you know, thinking about what's actually going to happen to the patient, what the clinical event's going to be, and how you can identify those patients best. And I highlight this for a couple of reasons. One is that I think we've talked previously about making the most of needle biopsies where the patients had one, and this is a good way of maximising the yield of that tissue in terms of learning for future studies, but also allowing us to move away from the biopsy and towards the prediction of clinical events rather than of simply fibrosis stage. And I think that that's really where we've got to end up. Yeah, I think this is, uh, again, a very, very interesting study, and I I agree with with Ian. This is really the way forward to use the liver biopsy and and the tissue to get information that helps us to move the field forward. In in the end, of course, we we need something else than the liver biopsy to to work with in clinical routine. But still, we have the liver biopsy and we will have the liver biopsy around for the time to come. And if we can do this kind of studies and get more insight in, in how this translates into something that we can use in routine clinical practice. I think this is really the way forward. There's so much we can do with the tissue as such, and we, we are hardly exploiting what we have. So this is one of the examples how it can be done better. Uh, agreed. Uh, I think it's a, it's an important abstract. I'm aligned. There will be biopsies will be around for some time, and we need to pull all the information we can get uh, from those tissues that the patients donated. So hats off to that author group. I like the paper. Yeah, I, loved, I loved the paper, and I actually did see the presentation. Although I saw it from the outside room, I made a habit of not of getting through things too late to get into the room and watching half the meeting on TV screens. Yeah, I thought it was a, it was fantastically well presented as well. And I agree with you on two levels, which is we need to stop thinking about conditional endpoints and start thinking about outcomes. And therefore, if we're going to have biopsies, the question doesn't become, what can we learn about the biopsy in terms of getting to the conditional outcome? But what can the biopsy teach us about outcomes? And what are all the ways that we can leverage leverage it towards that end? Because in the end, we're not treating conditional patients. We're treating, we're treating the end of what happens with the patient. The whole argument around that was, I think, pretty compelling. We're about one hour and three minutes into this. If anybody has another paper or another comment about the meeting you'd like to share, great. If not, I'll go to a closing question of my choosing. All right. Wildcard. What one thing will we see 
next year that you think will have the greatest impact on people next year being in Milan next June and what and when you answer that question what assumptions are you making about what will happen in the intervening year so reading the crystal ball right um, I think we'll see more data on the FGF 21 classes and some drug classes we haven't seen clearly the big screening data sets you know will even grow if, if I think back to Naila and our team we discussed some of those while we expanding the data sets there will be some abstracts looking at 10,000 of liver biopsies from a number of clinical trials combined. So I think here the power is going to become bigger. At one point, we're going to see the same results we've seen even in smaller studies. So then we know we kind of uh, gotten to where we uh, where we wanted to come. And on the nomenclature front, I think there's going to be so much adaptations and working around with a new nomenclature that will for sure be a big part of the, of the next year's meeting. Do me a favor, take a little bit and elaborate on how you see nomenclature being a big part of next year's meeting. I think we'll see a lot of analyses now from the existing cohorts and in terms of overlap and it's you know it ranges to 95 to 98 percent and i think we're going to see some prospective studies on the met ald cohorts now also the description of risk factors comparing this a little bit to reinforce us that we're not looking at a different disease we've changed the nomenclature and i think we'll see some you know public health studies on perceptions among patients clinicians i think there'll be a lot of those type of analyses cool that all that all sounds like fun okay sven or ian Something we'll see in 12 months that will be eye-popping important. I'm not Madame Blanche, of course, and Jorn already <laughs> covered quite a lot of exciting things that for sure are going on. I'm, I'm also counting on what the big cohorts combined with, with the powerful tools. We are more and more having to analyze data, what they will tell us. IOPC and other data combined, I think the data analysis tools are very powerful. We still need to, to learn to work with them, but I think that's also something that could come up with some surprises and new insights in the near future, next year or in the years to come for sure. Yeah, famed for my lack of imagination. And the gazing into a crystal ball is uh, a good ex illustration of why you should never be asked to draw anything that's other than a straight line. The, I <laughs> just... <laughs> I find it very difficult to, to know what to look forward to, although I am reminded of Ken Cousy at the nomenclature meeting in Chicago when, when he said every time they changed the definitions for metabolic syndrome, they sort of stood still for a year or two while people sort of revalidated the new the new definition and the idea of being an abstract review in the NAFLD clinical non-therapy area next year isn't already filling me full of joy as I anticipate to see study after study of overlapping definitions and how well they work. But I think the, the thing that, that might be beginning to move is, is, is as you're says that the MET-ALD group, the identification of that group within existing populations and you know how therapy might be targeted. I think there's a bit of epidemiological work to do in that to try and really tease out what the impact of each of the risk factors is uh, because it's quite a broad group and I think that's not that's not something that we've really spoken about but but the range of alcohol consumption is quite big and and you know how if where you subdivide that group not because I'm a hepatologist and I want to make it even more complicated but but where you subdivide divide that group so that you target your therapies most effectively. I think that's something I'll, I'll look forward to seeing how people begin to tackle that problem. That's interesting. I think of you as a splitter more than a lumper. So that makes a lot of sense that you would go to a splitter solution. I think that's great. I've got two. Reading between the lines in terms of how I understand trials are developing, um, I'm going to step back into Jorn's FGF21s and I'm going to say I'm hoping we'll see something about cirrhosis next year, either from the FGF21s or maybe from Alpine 4 that uh, shows us that there is a path forward for compensated cirrhotics. It's, it's a crying need. It's the place we can make the fastest impact, and I'd like to believe we're close. And if we're close, those are the most obvious places to look. Second, 
I think one of the things that happened this year, and it goes even back to the paper you talked about, but most of your presentation, but several others, focusing on the kinds of pictures that we can now create through AI. And some of those visual representations are, are rather exceptional. Histo had some, uh, Selvia had some, I think Farminist had some. And the more we can visualize about the disease, I think the better the questions we'll get. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that that whole area will push forward and it will make us a lot smarter and a lot more granular. Even though I'm a lumper at heart, I'll be a splitter on that one. I think a more granular understanding of delivers a good thing. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week, we'll be back with Stephen Harrison and Mazen Nordin to discuss more of the major drug development stories of the two sessions. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>